Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Ty Shea, Global CMO for Norton LifeLock. On the show today, we talk about his transition from investment banking and accounting to consumer brand marketing at P&G, and then his number of stents in companies that have had notable exits like Assurance, Hotwire, and LifeLock most recently. We talk about what he's coined as the term marketing jujitsu and why we should be considering turning off our marketing efforts, not just arguing for more budget. And we also talk about this notion of how performance marketing and brand marketing can live together synergistically and something he calls performance storytelling. I hope you enjoy this show with Ty Shea. Ty, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Alan. Excited to be here today. Yeah, well, let's let's start off with your background and where you started your career and how you became CMO of Norton LifeLock. All right. Well, <laughs> that's probably a long story. <laughs> I have a, uh, a really uh, weird background for a marketer. I majored in accounting, passed the CPA exam, <laughs> and was an investment banker. And wow. uh, I really hated that job. So <laughs> after I went to business school because I wanted to do a career change, and when I, while I was at Stanford, I really liked marketing. 
And so if you're at Stanford, I did about the most unsexy thing you could do is I went and worked at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, which <laughs> is a big company. All my classmates are like, what are you doing, Ty? But, you know, I liked marketing and I thought we're better to learn marketing than, than Procter & Gamble. This, and that was especially true in the, in the late 90s. So that was how I got into marketing. And then, you know, through a lot of different stops and journeys, starting in classical packaged goods and doing a few startups and my own startup, you know, now I find myself kind of full circle, part of Symantec through Symantec bought the company I was at before LifeLock yeah. uh, about two years ago. And so when they bought LifeLock, I think they really, Symantec really appreciated the marketing machine that LifeLock had built. And they asked me to stay on board and to actually run marketing for the Norton brand as well. So for the last two years, I've been running the Norton and the LifeLock marketing businesses. Right. Well, and that's not your first acquisition, right? You've It was Hotwire before that, and I think eSurance before that. Is that right? Yeah. I've been, uh, you know, there's a lot of luck in life, Alan. And <laughs> uh, I've been lucky a few times. Insurance, which was the first startup I joined, ended up getting acquired by Allstate. And then Hotwire, which was the second one I joined, became was bought by IAC slash Expedia. Mm. And then I did my own startup. We did sell that, but that wasn't a great sale. And then Square Trade, um, which is a, a phone insurance warranty company, sold to Allstate. And then LifeLock sold to Symantec. But little known fact, LifeLock was also um, one of the, the interested buyers or somebody who looked at it at least was Allstate. So I actually think, Alan, my destiny is to work at Allstate one day. So <laughs> it'll probably happen one of these days. <laughs> I love that. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Well, you remind me a little bit, and I, I didn't, we talked before, this didn't dawn on me, but the whole iBanker to marketer transition, there was a, a partner of mine in a prior business that did the same thing. So I haven't, I've met two of you now. Yes. <laughs> I can tell you it's it's a lot like medicine. It was uh, not fun at the time, right. uh, but it, it probably served me well. I, I remember, so iBanking was my first job out of college and you know I worked like crazy hours, like sometimes literally 100 hours a week. And I remember my first, my first day at Procter & Gamble, I was a summer intern from Stanford and I looked up from my desk at 5.30. And I looked around and I was literally the only one there. And like, it made no sense to me. I was like, where is everyone? It's only 5.30. Since then, you know, when you start in investment banking, the lucky thing is uh, most jobs seem pretty easy. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, I can totally get that. Well, one of the things that I think somebody that introduced us described this concept to me that you have called marketing jujitsu and one let's let's talk about that and just help listeners understand what what do you mean by marketing jujitsu okay great so i think i have this so i feel like probably it's because of my background in accounting and finance i really do feel like the purpose of marketing is to serve whatever the organizational goals are so sometimes the organizational goals are growth, sometimes they're margin or profitability. But I, th I think 
you know, what happens, the trap that a lot of marketers fall into is I think they become the, the champion of growth at all costs. And what that means is I think they feel like their role is to be at the table at the, in the boardroom and arguing for more spend, more spend, more spend. And I, I think the intentions are really good because I think, you know, in general, marketing is about spreading awareness and to, to make sure people know. But I, but I do also think that sometimes that's a little tone deaf if the organization is saying, look, we need to really focus on profitability or we need to apply some money to maybe this technical infrastructure or something like that. Right. So I've become, I think, a much happier and more balanced um, marketer when I just realized, try to get to a deep understanding with the CFO or the CEO of what the goals of the business are. And I try to make marketing ladder into that. And so when you do that, it actually changes your perspective on things. So for example, I think there's a lot of, obviously a lot of debate and discussion about marketing and about, let's say if you're doing a new program or budgets, there's a lot of debate and discussion. And as any marketer has gone through those things, and sometimes they're months and months of debate, discussion, analysis. What I've really turned into is there's a lot of scrutiny on any one program or any one budget. My first suggestion to everyone is let's just turn the marketing off and see what happens. So not do a lot of debate, <laughs> a lot of discussion. Okay, let's turn it off. Let's see what happens. Right. And that evokes a really interesting reaction. And that's where the jiu-jitsu comes from because yeah. it catches a lot of people off guard because there's no longer tension or argument. And in my career, I've had a couple CFOs take me up on it. And it's really both times, it's actually really shown the power of marketing by turning it off and agreeing what we're going to measure and how we're going to measure what happens. And in a way, there's a certain freedom to that, Alan, right. of just having that attitude of, okay, if you want to do that, let's turn off and let's just see what happens. So well, that's one form of marketing jujitsu. I mean, I love the idea and the 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 sense, I don't, I don't know if listeners got this, but just the sense of you're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing, you're always fighting, right? You're like, yes. I've never seen a marketer go into a boardroom and tell the CFO, you know, I'm not really feeling the way you allocated, you know, your activity-based costing last week. <laughs> Can we shift that up? I don't feel like we should be spreading this like peanut butter. I think we should be allocating it against your revenue or something, something a little different. Never heard that conversation, but you always hear somebody going, I don't like that ad. You know? Right. But so the freedom of feeling like, you know, you're always pushing, 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 but, and then you go, well, yeah, let's turn it off. Right. I mean, it's just like gasp, I would imagine in the room, <laughs> silent yeah. maybe, but, but the breath that you can get when you, you take that tact, I love it. Yeah. And what we've learned is, so we've, I've done that a couple of times in my career and, you know, one of the big things with marketing is attribution, right? Like yeah. I know half my spin's working. I just don't know which half. John Wanamaker said that. Mm -hmm. the, really, when you have these big programs and between LifeLock and Norton, we spend $250 million a year on marketing. Right. You know, honestly, sometimes the best way to figure out what's working and what's not working for yourself is to turn things off and see what happens. So we've, like I said, we've gone, I've gone dark couple times in my career. But then I also, you know, kind of consistently through, you know, a normal year will cycle certain programs on and off and try to understand mm -hmm. what the cause and effect is on the rest of the channels. So I think it's good to once again just be 
really listen to your CFO, you know, be a partner in the business. And I think there's some sense of, I don't know, you know, mutual respect or something that happens when you approach it that way. Right, right. Well, what was the trigger to do this? I mean, like, it, it's, it's not your first reaction, I would imagine, to say, yeah, let's turn it off. You heck? know, I think this is, so I've had some really lucky experiences in my life. So I went from Clorox to help launch insurance. And mm-hmm. I was sitting at insurance and it's an insurance company. So here I was from Clorox. I was sitting next to the um, data mining and the actuary team. So that's how insurance companies value their businesses. You know, they have actuaries that like literally say each customer is worth this. So the concept of like customer lifetime value, cost per customer churn. Like I, I sat next to the, that team and I, I really learned those principles. And, you know, at that time, I think it's pretty common now, but in 1999, it was pretty novel to think of things from a brand perspective and, and also from a customer value perspective. So that was, I think, the foundation. But then when I got recruited to help launch Hotwire, it was actually incubated out of a private equity firm, mm. Texas Pacific Group. Yeah. And if you know anything about Texas Pacific Group, it's very operational. I mean, they, they general what private equity does is they buy companies and they try to make them more efficient or work better. And so TPG particularly believes in dashboards and weekly dashboard meetings and KPIs. So Hotwire was incubated out of Texas Pacific Group. And I, since I was doing the marketing and um, basically the only source of revenue was we'd spend marketing, we'd get customers. I was running the company forecast meeting for two years. (laughs) So in that environment, every dollar I spent was, had amazing scrutiny of as to what what it was giving us in terms of customer and revenue. And I think it was when I was there with part of a private equity firm, or at least that mentality, that that was a very seemed like a very reasonable thing to do. They thought it was a good idea. And um, it may have actually been their idea. And I was like, yeah, okay, let's do that. (laughs) So it was within this, I think, private equity environment where, which is a little different than venture capital, I think. Yeah, for sure. I think venture capitalists and private equity view things differently, that I, I probably learned that that like, yeah, it's really just about it's nothing personal against me. It's just about really figuring what impact these programs are having on the business. Right. Well, I'm envisioning you, and this probably isn't fair, but as some sort of like marketing Jedi, and you're able to emotionally detach yourself from the situation to be able to to flip a switch like that to say, yeah, let's let's try turning it off. Is there any other preparation? (laughs) Is there any other preparation you've had along the way? No, I mean, look, I I don't think that uh, that's the case. I think that coming from a banking background and then working at this PE-backed company, Hotwire, I think that was really about he who had the best data or the best understanding of data kind of won. So this principle, I think, really started as really about data and about analysis and and whose analysis was better was kind of where this principle started. But I think as I've, I've, I've matured and uh, hopefully grown a little wiser, I think that it's translated or where I try to translate is to where you do, where you, where, what you talked about, which is, you know, being a little bit, not taking everything so personal right. and realizing, you know, as an experimental marketer, 
and everything's kind of a test, a lot of things aren't going to work. And I've just found that uh, if you have an approach that, hey, we are, the way we decide marketing programs is not the HIPPO method. Are you uh, familiar with the HIPPO method of decision making? No, no. Tell me about that. So it's the uh, highest paid person's opinion um, <laughs> is the one that decides. Nice. What we do is, you know, we're try to, we try to be very experimental and say, hey, we have hypotheses and we think if we, we run this program, this is what's going to happen. And we, we, we try to tell, let's say, everyone within the organization that before we do the experiment instead of after. Mm. Then what you really figure out is, you know, a lot of times you're wrong. And so you have these experiments and, and most don't work. But if you think of, you know, marketing as like that experiment and ultimately the consumers decide what works and what doesn't work and that you don't have to be right 100%, I think it really allows you tremendous freedom in terms of, of risk taking mm-hmm. and also, as you said, a little bit of peace of mind that you don't feel like um, you're under this pressure to say everything you're doing is perfect. Right, right, right. No, it's, it reminds me of um, I listen to other podcasts you know, in life lesson type situations. And a lot of people are talking about stoicism and, you know, being stoic. And, uh, you know, that in large part is about being able to control your emotional reaction to, you know, kind of step back and assess the situation. I I think there's a a great deal of lessons in that and what you're saying. Yes. I'm also, Tim Ferriss is a big yeah. person where I learned at least stoicism exactly. the concept. And I, I do think it's something that I, I strive for. So Good. I think ultimately, um, you know, stoicism, um, I'm still learning what it means. But yeah. an example is, you know, where you, you just try to focus on what you're doing and, and maybe a little bit less about what people think. Yeah. And, you know, about what's right and that. And so I think it's definitely something I aspire to. Oh, good. Well, I know you're sitting in the heart of Silicon Valley and you've got obviously that Stanford connection you talked about earlier too. There is, it seems to be in large circles, I think this is my personal opinion, but a little bit of an over rotation on performance marketing in the Silicon Valley and especially a startup scene with growth hacking and the like. And I'm just curious how you think about it. You, you've worked at big brands and growing brands and high growth brands. How do you think about that balance between performance marketing or what's called performance marketing and you know, brand marketing or, or kind of the less measurable things? Yeah, it's, I think we're all products of our, our background and experience. So, you know, growing up in brand management companies like Clorox and, and Procter & Gamble, and having a foundation in consumer insights and that I'm a big believer in brands, but uh, obvious as we talked about being part of these, being very quantitative and started that I'm very interested in connecting marketing to results, which is traditionally performance marketing. So I always have a tough time because a lot of times people ask me, well, what kind of marketer are you mm-hmm. a brand marketer, or a performance marketer? And, uh, I always had trouble answering that question <laughs> because I think both are important. So I've come up with this, this phrase, uh, performance storytelling, mm-hmm. because I think storytelling is so important. I think it's ultimately good marketers are almost always good storytellers. But then it's really important to be able to understand and measure and, and optimize your story and, and your marketing over time. So... 
I have this from all the uh, the painful lessons and all the mistakes I've made through the companies, different companies I've been at. I've really tried to put together a framework of how do you combine great storytelling and actually use data to tell better stories and to um, drive um, either faster growth or more efficient growth called performance storytelling. Interesting. Well, tell me, uh, maybe use LifeLock as an example. Tell me how performance storytelling works. Yeah. So I joined about four years ago and the situation when I came in was I was trying to, I think every time you take a job, you're trying to figure out like, can I be successful at this job? So some things that I realized were one is I had actually been a LifeLock customer before I joined the company. Mm -hmm. And that's because my my brother had his identity stolen and LifeLock really basically saved his life. So mm-hmm. if, it, if, if you've ever known anyone who's gotten their identity stolen, you're basically guilty until proven innocent. And the onus of proof is on you to, to prove that you didn't do these things. So I came in knowing, being a LifeLock member, knowing what LifeLock membership was about and why I became a member. So when I looked at the advertising and market, I thought the story they were telling were was overly complex, and so I think that there was I saw a big opportunity in in explaining what identity theft was and 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 what role LifeLock played. So I thought there was room to optimize the the story, mm. and then you know it was also a company that had grown so quickly that a lot of marketing was outsourced. I think we had we we're spending over two hundred million dollars a year on marketing, and we had thirty people in the marketing department and, and 30 different agencies. Wow. So it was one where marketing was not really, I would say it was outsourced versus a core competency. Right. So what I did and, and the other, the third thing was um, it, it literally had no marketing analytics department. So we had a finance department that was kind of helping us mm-hmm. measure um, what was working, and what wasn't working, but we didn't have a, a true marketing analytics. So, at LifeLock, what we really did was, you know, came in and really focused on the the who our our, our customer was through like segmentation. Mm-hmm. And once we knew who our customer was, we literally tried fifty different ways to tell the story of what LifeLock is and how it works. And we were able to develop um, some quantitative tools to help us figure out how well we were telling that story mm-hmm. versus how well our competitors were. So we we call it Ad Score. So each time we, we have a commercial, and this has been optimized over, over four years, I can tell you with pretty much certainty before I even air the commercial through some of this quantitative testing we do, how effective it will be at, at getting people to, uh, to buy. Wow. So we've been working a lot on just really quantifying how good our story is. And that's been one of the big improvements is getting better and better at telling our story. And, and that's not just in the advertising, but also on our website or in our mobile app, et cetera. Hmm. And then, you know, we, we're a, a company that has a really high lifetime value. So we uh, spend across 12 different channels, everything from direct mail to radio to infomercials to 15-second ads. To, so there's been a lot of work done behind the scenes about how to balance that spend and, and where to spend the next dollar. So, you know, if you're spending, if you're spending 200 million, where do you spend the, 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 the next million? Right. Is it TV? Is it radio? Is it that? So that's what we've kind of done is, is figured out that I'd call it a machine of how to efficiently tell our story and where to tell it. 
And then now that we're part of Symantec and we've combined LifeLock with Norton, we're now multi-brand, multi-product, and we're an international company in 38 countries. So the, 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 the algorithm has gotten much more complex about how to uh, tell our story. So it's been a fun challenge. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I don't know, I, I think I remember you mentioning you had like a three-step framework of around yes. performance storytelling. Can you tell uh, listeners about the three steps? Yeah, it's, it's really the, it's, it's really one is, is figure out what your story yeah. is, right. <laughs> really. And uh, one of the things is, uh, I call it, think like a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So if you've ever known like how certain movies are pitched, Alien, I think, was pitched as Jaws in Space. <laughs> like that simple, <laughs> right. right? Like if you're going to go get people to finance your movie, you go and you say Jaws in Space. And people are like, yeah, that works, Alien. So I think that business concepts, especially today, need to be How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That simple as well. So it's like, what's your equivalent to like a a VC elevator pitch? If you're going to describe your business in 10 seconds, how would you be able to do that? And there's a lot of, it seems really easy, but it's actually really hard to do something that's different and interesting and yeah. really appeals to your audience. Well, and to get it. So that's like the first step. Yeah. And to get it that simple, that, for sure. Get it that simple. Very, very difficult. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of companies never really get past that first step. And and even though LifeLock had existed for, I think, uh, eight years before I got there, I didn't feel like they we had simplified it to that step. Mm. And it ended up being that the best way to sell LifeLock was our biggest opportunity was people who had credit monitoring and thought credit monitoring was a proxy for LifeLock right. or identity theft protection service weren't buying it. So, you know, the kind of thing was, you know, why monitor your credit if it's not going to fix the problem? Get LifeLock. Gotcha. And we ended up building a lot of campaigns around that, and it was very successful. 
The second is this whole idea of, of quantifying how good your storytelling is. And, you know, a lot of people will do that. I talked about how we did that through creating ad scores for our TV from one to 100. But another way people, a lot of people do this nowadays is if you think about like landing page testing, mm -hmm. A-B testing, yeah. like how many people buy off this page versus how many people buy off that page. So it's really a systematic, that's, I would say that the story that has a better conversion rate or the page that has a better conversion rate probably has a, a better story. Yeah. And so thinking about that storytelling across all your marketing messages, you know, whether it's direct mail or et cetera, and really trying to, to figure out how to quantitatively beat that is the second mm -hmm. part. And then the third part, as I said, is then you figure out how you actually reach your customer and how much you want to spend through each channel gotcha. and how do you spread the work. Gotcha. Well, just this notion of storytelling and the quantitative and testing and refinement and optimization of that, that's a, that's a unique talent set of people. <laughs> it's hard to find people that can do both of those things, I'd imagine. And, and uh, you know, how do you think about it? How do you think about the talent and the culture of you've got marketing jujitsu, you know, willing to turn things off and, and step mm -hmm. back and look at everything that we're doing more objectively and then this notion of storytelling, which is much more artful in, in many respects. How do you, how do you balance yeah. those things in the talent and the culture that you're setting up? Yes, I, I do think I'm, I'm a big sports fan. I, I do believe that running a successful business is mostly about the, uh, the people. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that it's something I think about a lot is do you have the best team? And so one thing that, uh, as you mentioned, I do believe there are two core competencies in this performance storytelling. One is storytelling and the other is, is analyst, analytics or analysts. Mm. And so what we try to do is we try to create a, uh, an organization where you can be one or the other and be happy, <laughs> which is important <laughs> because I think sometimes in a brand organization, maybe the analysts that are very quantitative are frustrated because they're not, there's not enough rigor or analytics behind um, decisions. Mm -hmm. And in a, perform in a really perform hardcore performance-driven, or let's argue some of the Silicon Valley growth organizations, right. there's really no story put or no value put on brand or storytelling. So I, I do think that one of the challenges to, to creating an effective marketing team is to have an uh, environment where you have storytellers that are great at telling story te stories, analysts, and you create a system where they can kind of work in harmony. And, and that's really the challenge is, is the system where you can attract great talent on both sides. Got it. Got it. Well, you've been at a lot of different types of organizations. Obviously, we've gone over this, but like CPG to you know startups to companies that are being acquired or, or looking to be acquired. I think I hear a lot of big companies like frankly, the Procter & Gamble's now of the world, wanting to be smaller or act small in, in air quotes here for those that can't see my fingers. <laughs> and you've had, uh, had this mix of experience. What advice would you give you know, your peer set, other CMOs that are wanting to try to achieve this performance or test and learn culture, the speed, but not lose the storytelling component? You know, how, would you, how would you advise them? Look, I do think 
that uh, a lot of marketing, I mean, every marketer wants to be associated with a great product, right? So I think a lot of success in marketing in my career has actually has been just identifying which businesses you, you think you can be successful yeah. in and paying attention to that. So I think in the new era of marketing where, where there's a, a lot of accountability put on marketing, mm-hmm. you know, where you, you kind of have to show here's what I spend and here's what I get, that the only w- place I would feel comfortable being a marketer is where I have access to, to first-party data okay. and where, you know, I kind of own the customer and kinda, can kind of have some transparent some transparency into that. I do feel like, um, you know, even though I came through the packaged goods world, it would be a real challenge for me to go into, let's just say Procter & Gamble, how it operates today, where it's really uh, bifurcated from through the retail channel or intermediated through retailers. Yeah. And you, you don't really know who your customers and who's buying it. I would say, it doesn't matter what my skill set is, if I didn't have access to that data, I, I, I would probably struggle and would, would not be successful there. Mm. So, you know, to answer your question, I think finding places where if you're a marketer, finding places where you have access to data, I think gives you a good shot at being able to set up this construct. And then, you know, something else is, I don't think it's a good idea when you're going, especially to these early companies, to be the first marketing person that they hire. I, I, I really think there should be some study done as of the first marketing person hired by small companies, I think inevitably gets fired <laughs> or at least 80% yeah. of them do because, you know, there's this struggle of what we call in Silicon Valley, trying to get to product market fit and trying to figure out what good looks like. I think for early startups before it's established that, that it works and that the, the, the economics work that you can acquire customers for less than you spend it's really a lot of pressures put on the marketing because it's more about whether the marketing is good versus whether it's a, a good business or a good market, if that makes yeah. sense. So I always advise uh, my friends never to be the first marketing hire for a company. <laughs> always want to be second or third or fourth or, and you know have some semblance of there's an, a marketing budget that's kind of working. And they, once again, like I talked about with, with LifeLock, you should have some instincts about what you think you can do to uh, make it better. I think before your first day on the job. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's very true. Uh, I was on a conference call recently with Craig Welch from uh, Spencer Stewart. And oh, yeah. um, he was talking about that notion in particular, you know, don't accept a job unless you know how, you know, at least theory, in theory, how you're going to drive, drive the growth talking to a bunch of CMOs. I thought it was really good advice knowing. Greg would know. I think he's like one of the uh, best executive recruiters. Yeah, right no, no. Good guy too. Good guy. Well, curious if you have any additional advice. I mean, you've you've exited a number of times or been with companies that have exited a number of times. Is there is there any magic in this scaling, this growth to get through an exit, so to speak? I mean, I, I think it's like I said, you... Uh, Look, there's something heroic about turnaround situations or startups, right? You like you can go in there and and I've been lucky, like I said, more lucky probably than good in, in being able to do it. But I, but I generally think that the picking your job is really about picking something that's kind of already working mm-hmm. 
that's got good people. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you like your boss, you kind of have a values alignment with your boss. It's about, I always use the analogy, you're standing at a pier and you, there are different boats leaving the pier. And I really think it's not about optimizing for position, meaning, hey, I'm the, you know, the most important person or that, because you might be the skipper of like a small boat, that's, <laughs> you know, might not make it. Right. I would rather jump on the boat that uh, looks like it's going to go the fastest and the farthest and try to get myself in a situation like that, even if it meant, you know, maybe at the beginning, I wasn't going to be the skipper of that boat. I might, um, you know, be a crewman or something. And but if you have confidence in yourself, I think you can work your way up. So I don't know if you uh, follow the NBA, but I'm a big NBA mm. fan. I always think like the best person at picking their jobs was uh, this coach Phil Jackson, <laughs> who coached the. So his first coaching job, I think he coached Michael Jordan. He he joined his coach of a team that already had Michael Jordan and rode them to uh, six championships. And I think his second NBA job, he joined a team that had Shaq and Kobe. <laughs> and I think he won a couple more, two or three more championships. And then I think eventually his ego got to him because then he joined the New York Knicks. <laughs> and they didn't have Jordan or Kobe. And he became a very me- mediocre coach all yeah. of a sudden. So I really do think a lot of success is about picking your That's spots. a great example. That's a great example. Well, I, let's su- switch gears a little bit. I love to get to know the person behind behind the brand, behind the position. And I would love to know if there's an experience of your past that defines and makes up who you are today. Yeah, for me, Alan, I think candidly, it's like my, my father passed away when I was mm. younger. So I was... Uh, six years old. So for me, I think that, and I was the oldest son, middle child. So for me, I think having that and feeling a lot, you know, responsibility early is pretty, I didn't realize it at the time. I probably haven't realized it until very recently uh, when I've, I've been a little more slowed down and reflected on things. But that experience, you know, I think really set the tone for, you know, my desire to uh, go out there. And um, I was responsible at an early age etc. So that's probably been, you know, really defining event early in, in my life. What I thank you for sharing that, by the way. What was it you think that made you step up, I think to use your word? Yeah, it was uh I think it was literally the uh the expectation is that uh you know my, my father had a terminal illness and uh I think I remember it was six years old and he I, he really to paraphrase, but he really told me it was my job now. I was like the man of the, the house. So, you know, I remember that uh, moment vividly. It's one of my earliest memories of that. And I think that kind of, you know, he literally passed the baton to me. And I think at that point it was, uh, uh, I think I thought that way of, hey, I, I want to kind of grow up. I want to be a, a good provider. I want to be able to take care of people, take care of my yeah. family, et cetera. So, you know, we don't know how things would turn out, but I, I definitely know. So I didn't realize it as I was growing up that that was a big motivator. But as I reflect back, um, I've, I've kind of realized that that was uh, probably an early thing that had quite an impact on the rest right, of my life. Right. Well, and it's it's quite a quite a call to action for yourself, for sure. If you look at like I've looked at the the history. If you look at a lot of, um, and I'm not comparing myself to these right. people but if you look at a lot of presidents mm. 
if you look, a lot of them had lost a, uh, a parent or something at an early age. So I think there is something about that process that I think really uh, forces people, I think, to grow up in a hurry. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, what advice would you give your younger self if you were starting all over again? I've always been kind of a long-term thinker. Like I think really life is about the journey and the journey never really stops. There is no destination. I'm really, look, I've had a, my share of setbacks and mistakes along the way. But in general, I think it's really your, your life is really about people and your professional life is about, you know, working with good people and finding good people. And, you know, if you do that and, um, you know, you can also find a good business or two along the way, then I think you're set up for success. So I think always a lot of people, I think when they're looking at career options, including myself at times, I've maybe underestimated the importance of people. And uh, for me, we, we didn't talk more into why I didn't like investment banking, but I thought that, that that profession for me didn't really attract people that like I aspired to be when I grew up. I was like looking around, I was like, okay, well, so-and-so's divorced, so-and-so just missed their kids ballet recital because of a deal. So I think it's really about finding people that you have value alignment with. And if you do that and like I said, can, can find a good business or two, I think you're in good shape. Great. Well, what keeps you going? What fuels you now? There's this book by Carol Dweck called Mindset, Mm -hmm. which is about having a a growth mindset. So there's like some people, have you heard of the book, Alan? I've heard of it, but I don't know. Yeah. So some people are um, a fixed mindset, which is, you know, maybe have the, the impression that you're born a certain way and maybe, you know, I'm not good at math. So it's just something I'm not good at. And then they kind of, and kind of live their life that way. Other people with a growth mindset feel like, you know, if they're not good at something, it's just because they really haven't applied themselves. So I don't know why I think it's maybe born, but I've been born with this growth mindset of always feeling like I can do things a little bit better and always feeling like I can try a little bit better. And I think at one point I, I read a lot of um, Warren Buffett, and Charlie yeah. Munger, and they're both very, I think, parables of wisdom. But uh, I used to really take pride in, you know, I'm the same person I was when I grew up in Peoria, Illinois. Like, you know, I t- took a lot right. of pride in that. And then at some point, I maybe like five years ago, I, I switched it to where I was really taking pride in my evolution mm. as a person. And so now, you know, every year, one of the things I look at is, am I a different person at the end of the year than I am at the beginning? And being very intentional about, hey, what do I want to get better at? What do I really want to focus on? And so I found that actually to be really motivating for me to just think that, you know, the journey is never gone and you continue to, to, to become better, whether it's more skilled or a better person or a better husband or a better father. So I don't know. That's like an endless challenge <laughs> that uh, I feel like I'll never achieve. Yeah. So that definitely keeps me going. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I like the twist, you know, because I've, I've had similar thoughts in the past. You know, you, you want to hold on to your roots to some level, right? But then you reflect on you know, all your experiences you've had and you've, you've had a lot of experiences. And there's no way you're that same person anymore. 
you know, but maybe it's nostalgia that wants us to hold on to who we are or not forget maybe who we were. Yeah. Or like I said, it's just kind of a shift. It's kind of like the jujitsu we talked about earlier. Really embrace that. Like, you know what? I really aspire to be a better person. I aspire to do this and that. And like I said, it it kind of flips it around (laughs) to, to where evolution and change are good. I, uh, I said I'm a big basketball fan. The um, I don't know if you know Coach K from Duke. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm sitting sitting in Durham, North Carolina. Oh, did I use the wrong coach? You did. You <laughs> did. Well, I apologize. I'll give you a pass. I'll give you. A pass. <laughs> but you know, somebody like Coach K, who clearly super successful, right? Oh yeah. But he's yeah. been successful in many different systems, right? I mean, yeah. and I think one of the things is. Um, you know, he used to be about attracting good kids and good kids who would graduate. Mm-hmm. Then I think that kind of, as the world changed and people go to the NBA earlier, that really didn't work. And, you know, then it took, I think a lot of, you know, you kind of have to be egoless in this arena. And then I think he embraced the idea of one and done. And, yeah. you know, at this year, obviously you're there. I think you guys would beat them two out of three times, but yeah. Um, you know, they had the great recruiting class and all the Zion and all these one on one. So I think he's a really good role model for somebody who could have rested on what a couple championships, right. but has continued to evolve himself and his approach and his philosophy and continues to be successful. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, he, he continues to raise the, the level of experience and and performance of his team and and you know we did win two out of three so far yes we might meet again i can't remember the bracket set up it is but thanks to nike too for that (laughs) 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 you couldn't you got and i'm glad he's okay i'm really glad he's an unbelievable player zion but yeah, I was, I was glad for a little little reprieve there. Yeah, you almost can't blame Nike like a big uh, sports no, guy, but I, uh, that yeah. he's just a uh, a freak athlete, and uh, I don't think like a normal shoe would probably the things that you no. do would would be able to withstand that. Exactly, exactly. I mean, he's he's ginormous too. So, um, but anyway. Last couple of questions here. Are marketers tend to be students of other marketing? So I'm curious if there's any brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of what they're doing. Yeah. So I tend to be like really value brands, really be analytical, but I'm actually mm-hmm. really inspired by the same stuff that <laughs> inspires all of us, the stuff that's really courageous and brave and honestly hard to measure. So I don't know, you, you know, the uh, the Colin Kaeper- Kaepernick ads from like a year oh, ago, yeah. where yeah. it's just really risky to, to throw your weight behind him. So really courageous, experimental, breakthrough, bold stuff. That's the stuff that I would say really inspires me, mm-hmm. just like anyone else is just seeing work that's different and that's inspirational. But, you know, as far as like b- brands that are, kind of really know who they are and have this really successful formula. And I would say are probably things that brands that I emulate from a performance storytelling perspective would be like Geico and Southwest. Yeah. I think Geico knows who they are. I think they tell entertaining stories, but I think it's always like a call to action. 15 minutes to save you 15% or more and Southwest. Same thing. I think they 
are fun. I think they develop engaging advertising, but I think they always leave you kind of with the core value proposition, which is you're going to save money by traveling with Southwest. So, so both ends of the spectrum inspire me. Cool. Well, last question. What do you think the future of marketing is going to look like? I think it's going to continue to be about accountability. Uh, I think it's going to continue to be where I talked about if you don't really have first party data and can't really own your data and your customers, I think you're in real trouble. So I I think you'll continue to see that evolution of the marketers really I think the, the successful marketers will have to be able to not choose between being a brand marketer or a performance marketer. I think you'll have to be a performance storyteller going forward. Awesome. Well, Ty, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it, Alan. Thank you. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 